Section 37 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Fifth Decade, Chapter 3, From the Death of the Black Prince to the Death of King Edward III. The patriotic hopes of the nation collapsed with the death of the Black Prince. The king, broken down in spirits and worn out before his time by ambitious excitement, affliction and failure, had become a mere puppet of contending factions. The Duke of Lancaster resumed the virtual government of the country and retained it until the king's death, and his baneful influence may be traced in the rejection of many of the most reasonable and just of the later petitions of the commons. He sent the Speaker of the Good Parliament to prison, released Lyons and the other lesser culprits, and permitted the worthless Alice Perez to regain her place in the king's intimacy. William of Wickham was obnoxious to the Duke, partly as a bishop, partly because the Black Prince had regarded him with special affection and singular delight, and partly because of the popular part which he had taken in the last Parliament. But he, if any, might have seemed safe out of the reach of the Duke's vindictiveness. He was a man of blameless life, so blameless that one of his contemporaries said that his enemies in attacking him were trying to find a knot in a rush. He was of humble origin and had risen by his own merits. But there was some ground for Wycliffe's innuendo, that he owed his advancement in the church to his architectural skill. For though born in 1324, he is known only as surveyor of the king's works at Windsor, till his ordination, which is believed to have taken place shortly before his first ecclesiastical preferment in 1357. From this date he becomes a prominent figure in the history of his time. He witnessed the ratification of the Treaty of Bretigny, became chief of the Privy Council, and in 1366 Bishop of Winchester and Chancellor of England. The charges now brought against him could not be seriously entertained, but the Duke was sufficiently powerful to procure his deprival of his temporalities or revenues of office and banishment from within twenty miles of the court. But though dismissed from the chancellorship, and thus aggrieved and humiliated, the great bishop lost nothing even for the time of his popularity and moral influence, and was pardoned and reinstated at the commencement of the next reign. To that reign the rest of his history belongs, and with it his great foundations of New College at Oxford and of the first public school at Winchester, an institution which has held its place in the vanguard of progress for five hundred years and contributed perhaps more than any of its younger rivals to smooth the steep and rugged pathway by which poverty must climb the heights of knowledge and distinction. A churchman of a very different stamp was the Duke's friend and supporter John Wycliffe. Though something very like accident, as has been already stated, had associated the grave, ascetic, and high-souled doctor with the narrow-minded, vicious, and self-seeking feudal aristocrat, Wycliffe was not born and never could have become a courtier, and circumstances made him for the greater part of his life a wrestler with principalities and powers. 
One idea they certainly had in common, that the impoverishment of the clergy would be a good thing. Much obscurity hangs over Wycliffe's early history and circumstances. His birthplace and the date of his birth are both uncertain. We hear of no father or mother, brother, sister, or wife. Tradition indeed tells us that he was born at Wycliffe, the cliff of the river Swale, near Richmond in Yorkshire, that he was, in 1348, a student at Oxford, a well-known figure walking barefoot in a long gown of red serge, and that he wrote The Last Age of the Church under the impressions produced on his mind by the Black Death, which began its ravages in that year. The most recent researches, which seem to establish the facts of his identity with the Wycliffe, who was fellow of Merton in 1356, hitherto held, on the authority of Dr. Shirley, to have been a different person, and of his having been not only master or warden of Balliol College and rector of Fillingham in 1361, but also warden of Canterbury Hall in 1365. The mendicant orders were the objects of his first aggression on the spiritual despotisms of his day. In the Church of the Middle Ages, the Blessed Virgin and the saints were the real objects of worship. God the Father was so far withdrawn into the unsearchable distance and shrouded in clouds of metaphysical speculation that all ideas of his fatherhood and his love were lost in those of awe, mystery, or judgment. Christ, indeed, could be approached, but only by favor of his court above and the officers of his household below. Of these last, the prelates and the clergy of the church, the former were themselves almost inaccessible in their worldly greatness. They rivaled and in many cases surpassed the hereditary nobles in their wealth and pomp, monopolized the high offices of state, and threw their energies into the struggle of politics rather than the work of the chief pastor and evangelist. The lower clergy aped their superiors as far as their means would allow, and though their office was still held in honor, they had lost the personal respect and confidence of the people by their indolence, sensualism, and venality. Throughout the popular literature of the times, the typical priest is represented as a necessary evil, but more to be dreaded in a household than a venomous reptile, as a parasite, a hypocrite, a glutton, and the chief and habitual corrupter of female virtue. It was as a counter-influence to the intensely worldly spirit of the secular clergy, as the parish priests were called in contradistinction to the monkish fraternities, that the famous mendicant orders of St. Francis and St. Dominic had been established in the preceding century, and their influence had at first been so beneficent that Grosteste, the great reforming Bishop of Lincoln, was glad to avail himself of their services in England and lent them his name and authority. The orders soon began not only to draw to themselves all the ability and fervent devotional feeling of the age, but to offer the most hopeful career to religious ambition. Many ecclesiastics already highly placed forsook their dignities and enrolled themselves among these fraternities in the hope of still loftier advancement, for the mendicants had supplied many bishops and cardinals, and no less than four popes, 
in the last fifty years of the thirteenth century. The orders had become one of the great powers of the earth, were deeply tainted with the all-prevailing worldliness of the times, and had utterly lost the spirit, though they still affected the externals of poverty. Wycliffe's soul rebelled against the patent fact that the kingdom of Christ had virtually become the kingdom of this world, and he threw himself with all the passionate earnestness of his nature into the task of purifying, elevating, and spiritualizing the religion of his day, and bringing back a corrupt church to something like the ideal set forth in the New Testament. He published a little book called The Poor Caitiff, a collection of tracts, the purpose of which, he says, was to teach simple men and women the way to heaven. He established a fraternity of poor priests, who were to go about preaching and constantly mingling with the poor, an institution combining the discipline and ready obedience of a religious order, with the individual liberty of action and free development of personal gifts, which characterized the first lay preachers under John Wesley. These poor priests, with their fresh and hearty teaching, their unaffected poverty, and their friendly intercourse with the people in their perpetual itineracy, were no doubt the chief instruments in the rapid and extraordinary diffusion of the new doctrine. One of Wycliffe's bitterest enemies tells us, you cannot travel anywhere in England, but of every two men you meet in the road, one of them would be a lollard. This was the name given to the followers of Wycliffe from a Bohemian word, lalin, to sing or lull, as we have it in our lullaby. People laughed at them at first as harmless fanatics, but before five and twenty years were passed, they had begun to be martyrs, and we find a century further on, a very grave jest at their expense in Erasmus, who expresses a hope that either Lollardism or persecution would stop before winter, for it raised the price of firewood. To attack the mendicants was indeed to disturb a hornet's nest, a step on which no timid or worldly-wise man would have ventured. They were in the habit of selling shares in masses for the dead, and indulgences and absolutions for the living, as Tetzel did a century and a half later in Luther's time. Thus Wycliffe said, they make property in ghostly goods, where no property may be, and professed to have no property in worldly goods, where alone property is lawful. The beginning of his strife with the mendicants dates from the time of his residence at Oxford, which university had suffered severely from their insidious encroachments. They had stirred up the scholars to sedition and seduced them from their colleges into their own monasteries, and the number of students was enormously reduced, it is said from 30,000 to 6,000, by the dread of sending children to a university where they were thus liable to be kidnapped. Frères, says Wycliffe, drawn children for Christ's religion, into their private order by hypocrisia and lazings, and staling children for father and mother. But his next appearance was on a wider stage. In 1366 he found himself embroiled in a controversy involving the very principles of papal authority in England. Owing to the non-fulfillment of the conditions of the Peace of Bretigny, a new war was inevitable, and in fact imminent, 
and at this juncture Pope Urban V, in the interests of his French master, put forward a demand for the arrears of the papal tribute of 1,000 marks a year, which King John had covenanted to pay in acknowledgment of his holding England and Ireland as fiefs under Innocent III. The claim for tribute had been admitted by the feebler Plantagenet kings, but repudiated by the first and third Edwards, and Parliament was now summoned to consider the Pope's demand for the arrears of thirty-three years. It is not too much to say that at this time the predominant feeling in Parliament was hatred to the Pope, and their reenactment of the first statute of Premuniri a short time previously, placing provisors out of the protection of the law, ought to have convinced him that they were hardly in a mood to accede to any papal demand, least of all to one the mention of which recalled to mind the period of their country's greatest degradation. They unanimously resolved that King John, having no power to give away his kingdom without the concurrence of Parliament, the claim fell to the ground, and they promised to stand loyally by the king in his resistance thereto. Wycliffe was publicly invited to defend the course taken in the refusal of the papal tribute, and startled the orthodox world by laying down the novel, but when once stated, incontrovertible doctrine that king and parliament are supreme in all causes over ecclesiastics as well as over laymen. In the year 1368, Wycliffe published his treatise De Dominio Divino, in the preface of which he unconsciously fixes the date of the true commencement of the Reformation by declaring that henceforth he would dedicate his time exclusively to theology. This resolution to which he finally adhered was probably not taken till he had despaired of church reform in its political and social aspect. When Wycliffe called upon the Pope and the bishops to lay aside their purple, to live frugally, watch and pray, and do the work of an evangelist, he carried with him the whole heart of the laity, just as, in fact, Grosteste had done a century before, when he denounced the worldliness of the clergy. But it must be borne in mind, in estimating the boldness and originality of Wycliffe's work, that up to this time the doctrine of the Church had remained for centuries unchallenged, and was received with unquestioning faith by the mass of the people. That doctrine it was the object of his life henceforward to purify and reinvigorate, by bringing it back to the standard of primitive simplicity, a task which he set about in the spirit of an earnest and courageous, but it must be confessed, a somewhat ruthless controversialist. This is not the place to discuss the directly religious teachings of Wycliffe, which indeed belongs properly to the next reign. Suffice it to say, in the words of a recent biographer, that there is scarcely any doctrine now prominently set forth by the Church of England which was not insisted upon by him, scarcely an error against which the Church of England practically protests, which Wycliffe does not treat in a manner which anticipates and justifies our modern objections. His positive doctrines may be summed up in the assertion of personal responsibility, the supremacy of the scriptures and salvation by faith, 
his negative teaching in the denial of the necessity of priestly mediation and of all the superstitions which cluster round it, especially that of a miraculous change effected by consecration in the elements of the Lord's Supper. It was the promulgation of this last heresy which united king, lords, and commons with the exasperated hierarchy against him. He was summoned before convocation at Oxford and solemnly banished from the university, upon which he retired finally to his living at Lutterworth, devoting himself before and after the first attack of that paralysis of which he afterwards died, to writing, to pastoral work, and to his translation of the Bible. Of that work a clerical contemporary of his thus writes, This master, John Wycliffe, hath translated the Bible out of Latin into English, and thus laid it more open to the laity and to women that can read, than it had formerly been to the most learned of the clergy, and in this way the gospel pearl is cast abroad and trodden underfoot of swine. In such language as this, prejudice and bigotry could speak of an effort which may be said without exaggeration to have forever rolled back the stone from the well of the water of life. Wycliffe died in 1384 and was buried in peace in his own churchyard. But thirty years later, the Council of Constance ordered his remains to be dug up and thrown far away out of consecrated ground. His body was burned, and the ashes flung into the swift, which runs by the village of Lutterworth. The brook, says Fuller, did convey his ashes to the Avon, Avon into Severn, Severn into the narrow seas, they into the main ocean, and thus the ashes of Wycliffe were an emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed all the world over. These events, of course, took place beyond the limits assigned to this narrative. But Wycliffe is the chief figure in a stormy scene which closes the political history of the reign of Edward III. In February 1377, he was summoned to appear before Courtney, the Bishop of London. The charges then made against him were of a purely political character the object of the prosecution being to assail the Duke of Lancaster through his principal supporter, and, as Dr. Shirley says, to proclaim to the world that the principles which the Duke was putting into practice against the Church were subversive not only of that institution, but of society itself. The trial took place in that noble Gothic Church which, till the Great Fire in 1666, stood upon the site of the present St. Paul's. Barons, prelates, and doctors from all parts of England had taken their seats when a tumultuous mob rushed in and filled every corner of the building before Wycliffe's arrival, for the trial excited the most passionate interest, and the popular feeling, for some unexplained reason, ran strongly against the reformer. When he took his place before his judges, the whole of the circle were seated and he left standing. The Earl Marshal, Lord Percy, who had come with the Duke to support Wycliffe, ordered a seat to be given him. The Bishop of London refused, and a fierce dispute arose between him and the Duke, the former retaining his temper and dignity, the Duke turning red with rage and muttering that he would drag the Bishop out of the church by the hair of his head. 
the Londoners overhearing the threat pressed tumultuously and menacingly round their bishop, and the assembly broke up in the utmost disorder. The following day the excitement increased. The mob rushed to the Duke's palace of the Savoy, beating to death by the way an unfortunate priest, who had incurred their wrath by stigmatizing the Duke's prisoner, Sir Peter de la Mare, as a traitor. The Duke himself was absent, so the rioters contented themselves with hanging up his arms reversed like those of a traitor in the principal streets. He, meanwhile, had fled to Kennington and sheltered himself under the popularity of the Princess of Wales, who, as the widow of the people's friend, the Black Prince, was dear to the heart of every citizen. King Edward breathed his last on June 21, 1377, in his palace at Sheen, in the sixty-sixth year of his age and the fifty-first of his reign. His jubilee had been celebrated a short time previously, and a general pardon granted to all offenders with the express exception of William of Wickham. It is difficult to read without emotion the brief description handed down to us of the deathbed of this magnificent prince, long honored as the mirror of chivalry and envied as the favorite of fortune. Alice Perez remained by his bedside till he began to sink, but a few moments before he breathed his last, she drew the jeweled ring from his unresisting finger and left the palace. His attendants had dispersed through the rooms in search of plunder, and he was left alone to die when a priest entered unbidden and held up the crucifix before his fast-glazing eyes. The king summoned strength to thank him, took the crucifix in his hands, kissed it, wept, and expired. End of section 37